welcome to cii podcasts welcome to uh, the cii unicorn forum important initiative by cii where we speak with leading uh, founders of unicorn companies and and hear about their story their journey uh, and learn uh, from them free flowing conversation between me and ashwin uh, where we try to you know go deeper into his life some of the critical decisions he took um and his success in creating uh, eruditus and emeritus uh two large and leading companies in the edtech space today uh, with that i want to welcome ashwin damera the founder and ceo of eruditus and emeritus thank you so much for joining us ashwin thanks abhilash for having me looking forward to it great we'll jump straight into it ashwin uh i want to go very early in you know maybe your childhood uh tell me a little bit about those formative years and where did the kernel of entrepreneurship uh you know get seeded if at all in those formative years uh, of your childhood and growing up yeah actually so i grew up in a in a south indian family i grew up in chennai um entrepreneurship was never part of our discussion but education was uh and so it's not surprising that i somehow found my way into an edtech company uh education was given a very high premium both academic education so my mother drove that significantly but also sports uh and my father drove that quite significantly and we, i was pretty good me and my brother we were pretty good in both um we come from you know fairly decent means we, we weren't affluent we weren't poor so we had access to you know good quality education fundamentally i think what mattered in that phase of my life was i went to a krishnamurthy foundation school um uh, this kind of follows a little bit uh you know the montessori system but creative thinking we didn't have exams till 8th grade a lot of the school it was a 13 acre campus in the middle of uh, madras um one class of 20 students um, very f- friendly learning curiosity driven learning etc that had a deep impact in me because it made me question many things in life uh it was in rote learning etc so you know i would say that for my formative years up to the point that i went and did my mba at harvard business school which at that instant again education but higher education that opened up my life to entrepreneurship and made me take a you know a detour that i was not planning to i'll talk about that later but my early years was really about you know just the value and deep respect that i have for education and for faculty that came i think very much through my childhood understood i i would definitely want to talk a little bit about sort of the years in between before your first startup the years when you did you know chartered accountancy hbs worked with city group tell us about that phase in your life like what what was the thinking how were you making decisions walk us through that that pre entrepreneurship phase of your life yeah yeah you know i would have to be honest so much of my life was kind of accidental or just luck or just you know just happened So after I finished my 10th I had to decide 11th or 12th either science or commerce I used to see my brother studying these massively thick books in engineering so I said no I don't want to do that so commerce became my choice and then from commerce I said I'm finishing my 12th what do I do so bcom ca these were the choices so I enrolled in in doing my ca so till that time kind of life just happened it wasn't like some major thought that I had that I'd plan it out to go in a certain direction And then again my you know when I was doing my CA my brother left for the US to do a 
masters and then a phd and he would he would tell me how the education system there is so different with the spirit of inquiry so many choices so i was thinking about even as i was doing my ca and i was doing very well it was a very hard <laughs> three years uh, but did very well in, at it uh, i was thinking about okay i need to work and then go and study in the us maybe do an mba and so on and so forth uh, i joined city group uh, and you know i i love my time there i worked both in madras and in mumbai But what's nice about Citi Group, and this was again in the early 2000s, is even for an early uh, management uh, professional like me, they give you a lot of responsibility. So I was managing, you know, a large uh, offshore fund in Singapore as well as in uh, London for NRI business. Then I worked in the Consumer Bank Treasury. I was in the Asset Liability Committee, and I was still in my early mid 20s when I was doing all of this. So it was fantastic experience. But eventually, you know, I decided that you know, I had this idea that I did want to go to the U.S. I did want to get an MBA, and you know, when I got into Harvard Business School, it became a no-brainer decision. Got it. And how were those two years at HBS? Those were the best years of my life. Seriously, <laughs> uh, the the thing about uh, I, I think HBS because my experience, but also maybe top U.S. universities. is that every day they expose you to so many different um, you know intellectually stimulating things for example uh, we had uh, nick bodyteri who was the coach for um, pete sampras andre agassi as well as uh, i think monica selles come and talk to us about what sports can teach you about leadership um, in the indian education system it's kind of regimented right you do this then you do that and then you do this right it's kind of you kind of your path is set in the us it's very open so i went in thinking look i will do my mba in the us i'll work with mckinsey or some consulting firm for 3 to 5 years and i'll come back to india i always knew i would come back to india i didn't know that i would come back as an entrepreneur but while i was there i was exposed to for example in my summer internship i interned for the ceo of jetblue airlines right it was just like shadow the leader do nothing but i was sitting in a meetings with airbus where they were buying 3 billion dollars worth of planes where they were going to the new york port authority to build terminal 5 where they were negotiating with the airline union etc and i suddenly said wow if this is what entrepreneurship is about and leadership is about i want to be that person so that first spark of becoming an entrepreneur which was never part of my plan happened in that summer internship and then i took a lot of electives on entrepreneurship and some a couple of my friends two of my classmates actually gave me you know my first check to say go back and start my business because what happened is that i my first startup travel guru was a business plan contest entry at harvard business schools business plan contest they have an annual business plan contest we didn't win we came runners up that itself was super exciting because i never expected that to happen and remember this was just a field study i was supposed to do as part of the curriculum i was became runners up and then a couple of my friends said hey here's some angel money go start this up and at the same time my kind of structured path of getting into consulting i had an offer with mckinsey in new york city i had a signing bonus i had a, a pretty lucrative offer that in a year or two i would have paid off my student debt i had about you know 1 crore of student debt and i had to say no and i said no to all of that to come back to india to start travel guru but that journey right if you ask me before if not for hbs would I have had the guts and the gumption to make such a you know at that time kind of risky move the answer was no but thanks to that education thanks to the opening of the minds i think i was able to take that leap of faith and if i look back that was a pivotal moment in my life 
I certainly think that was. I think you make it sound easier than it would have been, you know, with the with the massive debt and uh, just the general expectation of what one is supposed to do, right? Like entrepreneurship often is about, you know, choosing the path less taken. And this is, you know, this is also a time when 2005. It's not like, you know, entrepreneurship in India is even remotely close to mainstream. Um, this this wouldn't have been easy. What what was going on in your mind? Tell us, tell us a little more. I want to like actually understand the mindset at the time when you were <laughs> you making this choice. No, no, you're absolutely right. It wasn't easy, right? Remember, I come from a tra- kind of traditional South Indian family. So my parents, um, well wishers, were like, "Oh, you must take that job at McKinsey. Work three to five years. You can always become an entrepreneur. What's the hurry?" Um, and You know, my brother had kind of gone to the US, done his masters, and taken up a job at Hewlett Packard. Was well settled and you know doing very well. Um, but this was definitely a very risky move. There, I don't come from a family of entrepreneurs or business people, um, so this was definitely a very risky uh, move for my family and for myself. Look, I'll be honest. At that point of time, there there was definitely a lot of concern in my head. But I was also about 27 years then, so there's a lot of, <laughs> you know, you want to kind of take those bold bets. And you're right, Abhilash. Think about 2005. The largest exit in the startup system at that time was Bazi. I don't know how many people even remember this. Bazi being acquired by eBay for 50 million dollars. That was the best exit ever. 2004, yeah. I think it happened. Amish Bajaj and Suveer. And so in that like environment, to come back. <laughs> exactly. So, the, see, look, who predicted that the world will change and all of this would happen? But you know, I came back yeah. in two thousand and five, um, and it was very tough. No salary for the first six months. The hundred thousand dollars that my friend gave was literally running out in six months. Every VC said no to us. Um, you know, I was sharing a room with a Citibank colleague, ex-colleague of mine, somewhere in Kandivali in Mumbai, coming to you know Nariman Point two hours in a you know Kali Pili to work. It was it was tough. It was tough, but I think perhaps the lesson there for every entrepreneur is that the early days are tough. But the big, you know, I always say this: the big difference between an entrepreneur and somebody who's not is at least like you and me, right? We took that plunge. We didn't wait for the hedge and the safety and say, "Oh, I'll I'll have my full time day job. I'll start something on the side. If it becomes big, I'll then leave my job and do it." We had the conviction of the idea to go for it. I think that was definitely the case with me. um and again if i look back i'm happy i had that conviction because i don't think i would have been a very good consultant yeah no that's that's so important you know that that conviction i often see founders these days they want to get their funding well secured even before you know uh, quitting their jobs etc and i tell them that look the starting point is your conviction everything else will flow from your conviction uh taking the leap Uh, is almost like table stakes. Uh, tell us about that first startup. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about Travel Guru and what what that experience was like. Yeah. So look, I didn't have any travel experience. I didn't have any startup experience. I didn't have any tech experience. So one should really have asked me like, what were you, what was I doing, you know, with an online travel portal? But I'd worked in the summer for a airline, and I was looking at fares in India. I was doing a project for them, whether JetBlue should even be in India. um and you know 2005 again nascent startup ecosystem we raised a round from westbridge capital which later on became sequoia then we raised one more round um we pivoted early so this was something that i learned very quickly that you know if you have to 
you know, you have to think about pivots, you have to think about product market fits. We started with the airline tickets, but it's very low margin business. So we pivoted to hotels. And by 2008, we had become the largest hotel aggregator in India. So we had aggregated about 4,000 hotels. Most of them were like small properties, 10 room, 20 room properties. They had no tech. So we used to, we build the tech where they could connect real time their inventory to our system. We then connected our system to about 2000 travel agents. We gave feeds to Expedia, Travelocity, etc. So we had built a really solid hotel aggregation platform, which I think really was the value in the business. Um, in 2008, we nearly got acquired by Expedia. The deal fell through uh, because Lehman Brothers collapsed in August. We had two months of cash in the bank. So we went again from up to down and then we had to manage that. And then in 2009, eventually we sold to Travelocity. That those, uh, you know, four years of that startup journey, I think I learned a lot because what people don't understand is that, you know, if you look at even the current environment this year is so much tougher than the last few years. Right. But this is perhaps the year when entrepreneurs will learn the most uh, and you learn how to run a sustainable, viable company, how you don't acquire customers, you know, negative CAC and this and that, and all of those things. Right. So that startup experience, I think, was very helpful because when I started up a second time, I think that wisdom that I had through those four years of travel, we made many mistakes, we did some things right. But in Eruditus and Emeritus now, because of that experience, I think I was a much better founder, much better entrepreneur. Understood. <clears throat> and, you know, for any entrepreneur, the decision to, to sell a company is not an easy one. Uh, it's a combination of you know multiple multiple factors that you have to weigh in. Uh, how did you make that decision to you know eventually exit to Travelocity? What was you know what was shaping your uh, your decision making process at the time? So you know we when in two thousand eight we nearly sold to Expedia. We had come very close to signing agreements, etc. So in some sense we were okay. It was an earnout structure. So. Uh, one thing that entrepreneurs can think about is if you're not fully ready to exit and earnout gives you the ability to take some risk off the table, but then you also build for some upside. But a year later when Travelocity acquired us, it was a full buyout. Um, and you know, at that point of time, it was very difficult for us to raise capital um, because 2008 had happened, markets, funding markets were shut. We were now thinking about, you know, what do we do with the business? We don't have capital, we can't grow. Uh, we saw Travelocity as a good partner for us because they didn't have a large business in India. So the team would have been safe. They would have invested in the business. They would have grown the business, all of that. Personally, for me, look, I was, I'm not sure I wanted to sell the business at that time. I, I still felt at that time uh, that there was a lot to build, right? And I think it would have been a mistake had we not sold. So what I'm saying is, had my own view at that time was there's still a lot to be built. Why are we selling? We should continue to build. But that was a wrong view because every entrepreneur also, Abhiraj, as you know, has an opportunity cost on their time. So many of the other travel startups who continue to build, you know, have very recently, this clear trip, Yatra, other people, they've sold for, you know, 50 million, 100 million dollars this year or last year. Um, whereas the same time that I've spent now building Eruditus, uh, we are in our last round, we're 3.2 billion, but more than that, it's a much more valuable enterprise that we've been able to build. Um, so initially I had some regrets about selling, but if I look back, I think that was the right thing to do. Right thing for me, for our team as well, for uh, as an investor. A very, very powerful point there, uh, Ashwin. 
you know i think any any book talks about this uh, a lot in her podcasts and her books she says you know sometimes the decision to uh, move on from something or walk away from something or what she describes as quit and you know in our uh, in the business world is assumed to be a bad decision in reality it's it's literally this the op- opposite end of the coin is is doubling down on something she says that you know usually when you will when when the timing to make that happen is right it will feel like it's toward um and typically like you know and she uses the analogy with poker and anyone who's played poker knows that a very critical art in sort of doing well at poker is to quit right and to fold and it's only evident towards the end that you know oh i folded at the right time when you're folding it almost always appears like you're folding early uh and i think the point you made is like a very powerful one i certainly think about it a lot because i have the tendency to to call it a day when it's when the writing is on the wall uh it's usually too late uh but but very powerful um let's keep going in the in the same uh you know linear fashion so you you're now uh, exited travel group probably made a little bit of money uh still hungry you know it doesn't feel like uh like the, the, the that was it and and so you're still hungry tell us tell us you know what what led to the decision to start again what was the thought process uh how did uh, you come to uh zeroing in on eruditis so um look while travel guru had its ups and downs i really loved my entrepreneurship journey because i, I thought we were building something right and when you look back the fact that we could connect 4000 hotels who had no connectivity to a platform like ours and through that to global travelers you know that that was kind of very valuable as opposed to to that industry uh i had to spend a year with travelocity um to make sure there was a transition i consider myself a responsible individual a responsible entrepreneur so i spent every bit of that year making sure that the team the technology and you know all of what we had transition but in that year i also was thinking about what next and you know abhilash one thing that i realized through this experience and that's why experience is the biggest teacher is that anybody who starts a company and says hey i always knew it was successful is a blatant uh, that's a blatant lie it's not true uh, the truth is about 1 in 10 companies 1 in 10 startups will actually succeed okay about 4 or 5 will shut down very fast and the balance will kind of live, be in this zone of just surviving and you know but not thriving so i realized very quickly that look i don't i can't control whether my next startup is going to be very successful or not so then if i was to commit the next 5 10 20 years to doing something it better be something that i care passionately about and there were two things for me that i think i felt very uh, passionately about see when you grow up in a country like india every day if i look out of my window i live in mumbai you see islands of prosperity but you see oceans of poverty right and this is true for most parts of india and it's very difficult growing up in that environment and being a conscientious individual not to feel that at some stage in your life you have to play a role in changing that even in a very small way but in in changing that and to me two things that came up were education and healthcare right as a way of playing a role in kind of moving the needle a little bit in solving that social injustice issue um and i started evaluating both healthcare as well as education 
uh and you know like i told you in my early history i think the fact that i grew up in the family that i did where education was given so much emphasis and the fact that my education had such a massive value to my own career prosperity fulfillment all of that it slowly became apparent that education was perhaps the best fit you know a lot of people talk about product market fit uh, i also think we should talk about founder product fit right so for example if i have to run a crypto uh, startup i'll be miserable gaming startup probably be very miserable but education i think i mean i, I want to be modest i think i have a good fit because i value the faculty i value curriculum i value the impact that it has i have a res- deep respect for what education institution do i can also build given my dna long lasting trusting relationships with these institutions and so on and so forth so it becomes a good fit for me as a founder this industry to work with so that's how kind of education came and we started in 2010 i found my co-founder uh he also is passionate about education he had gone to inciad so had great education but he had also worked in inciad so he's kind of the purest who brings the education experience and i would bring in this viewpoint saying look it's great teaching 30 40 students in a classroom but how do we teach 3000 30000 300000 but have the same quality as you have in a classroom right it's kind of paradoxical but that was the uh, assumption that we wanted to challenge that you can't scale quality education So we started in 2010 the company was called Eruditus it was an offline business with India as its focus and today we are an online business 20% of our students come from India 80% are outside of India it's 100% online we've come a long way way beyond what we imagined but that core value and mission has always stayed which is how do we make high quality education accessible and affordable that's why we started in 2010 and that's why I'm still excited about this business today extraordinary and just hearing you speak ashwin about sort of founder market fit i think it's just it's a really underappreciated uh concept and i i tell this to founders young founders a lot go behind something that is that you're deeply passionate about don't just go for sort of the flavor of the season right the flavor of the season will change in two years you know you have to commit 10 15 years and when you spoke about your background you know your schooling the 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 unique school that you went to in chennai when you spoke about the 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 education system at hbs um these things you know in hindsight vision is always 2020 i'm sure they played a very very important role uh, in the choice of the market you eventually played in uh, tell us a little bit about i do want to like you know uh, double click on the early years of eruditus tell us a little bit about that phase uh, the first 4 5 6 years uh did you get a lot of love from venture capitalists did you get a lot of money instantaneously being you know a successful repeat founder what were those early now of course you you've gotten a lot of love of late in the last 2 3 years what were those early years like you should never confuse money and love they are very different sometimes the same but different but um so way back in 2010 like i said i had a lot of learnings from my first startup one of that is i didn't want to raise venture capital money Right, I wanted to prove product market fit. I wanted to run a business that's profitable from year one, right? And in Travel Guru, we weren't profitable ever, right? Um, so we started very small. Chaitanya and I, we didn't have an office. Uh, even our logo for Eruditus, we just put it on a computer and did it up ourselves. We didn't have a design firm. None of that happened. Uh, it was our, you know, 
our wives were involved it was family um it was very scrappy you know bootstrap kind of a startup in the first year uh, you know he went to ncid i went to harvard business school we said hey can we partner with you ncid said yes so that became our first partner uh ncid had a partnership with wharton so the word went to wharton so in the second year wharton became our second partner a wharton faculty went to mit third year mit became a partner fourth year columbia business school became a partner and so on so if the first 7 years we grew from so from 2010 till 2017 when we raised our first round we grew from zero in revenue to about 7 million dollars in revenue we grew from zero partners to about 5 to 6 partners we had expanded a little bit from india to we had opened an office in singapore and dubai we were not paying ourselves much salary you know way below market uh, they, we didn't take any money out of the business but what we had done in that period is we had understood how to partner with the elite institutions of the world in a trusted way and how to expand those partnerships at that time it was still classroom but we had built a very strong relationship so around 2015 and 2016 abiraj when kosara had launched in 2013 2014 edx which harvard and mit founded around that time we went back to these institutions and we were able to sign mit columbia university as well as dartmouth as three universities our first three partners to create online courses right and this this took about a year just the contract with three universities about ip about trademark about data privacy etc you are talking to the general counsels of the university took a year for us to sign but in 2015 we did and that then became a hockey stick kind of take off for us because suddenly we realized that mit is a brand in brazil it's a brand of course in india but it's in vietnam in china in europe in all parts of africa etc so to colombia so to uh, these other schools and so suddenly a business that was classroom in india became online and global okay but that is from 2015 2017 onward but the first 5 years you know it was tough we had many doubts i had a very famous um, entrepreneur you know who's done multiple serial entrepreneur based in bangalore very good guy good friend so a lot of respect he said ashwin what are you doing you're wasting your time why don't you just raise 100 million dollars and scale you can do it you're a second time entrepreneur and my question to him was but this 100 million dollars will help me do what it won't make me sign up universities faster so why do i need the money um and we had a lot of doubts ourselves at that time saying are we going too slow should we go faster should we try and you know do something else expand etc but i look back abiraj uh, and i said that discipline of you know there is this concept of disciplined entrepreneurship there's actually a book on that topic by bill allet a professor at mit called you know disciplined entrepreneurship i think that dna that chait and i had for those first 7 years of building a solid business good unit economics solid team that then helped us scale in a good fashion thereafter right we we not the types to burn money doing some crazy brand campaign on ipl or just you know other things that other startup we have seen do um and so that has been a good part of our dna but i must say that there were times when we people have questioned us saying hey why are we not grown fast like i i remember an example i was pitching to a vc in bangalore well known vc i won't take the name and he said uh, seven years you've not raised any capital uh, you're profitable but you're not growing fast enough so you're not an entrepreneur you're a promoter and we don't back promoters so i was thinking about this and i was saying 
I thought I was building a good business. It was profitable, growing 30, 40% year on year. And you're telling me that I'm not an entrepreneur. And I was very puzzled by that. By the way, today, every investor is telling their portfolio company, be profitable, grow 30%. It's okay. Uh, but back in the day in uh, 2015 and 16, the story was different. Again, I think you make it sound very straightforward, but I can I can only imagine that that there would have been many moments of self doubt and and reflection, and sometimes, you know, the foundational years can be a very very solid foundation for a company. Uh, that ethos never leaves the company, even when uh, you make a lot of money and 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 success. Uh, and in your case, this is you know this is a very classical sort of bamboo. Growth story where years and years go into just uh, investing, and then eventually uh, the hockey stick comes in. Uh, tell us about you know when when that started to happen. How did that change? You know, twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen onwards, you started to see uh, a lot of traction and that hockey stick growth. And then eventually, when COVID came, you know things just went off the roof for you guys. uh talk us through that phase and more importantly how did it change you how did it change the team the culture if at all yeah so look in our first 5 7 years like i said what we really did and this is very important in our model our model is to work with universities in partnership with universities we don't offer courses on our own so first 5 7 years went in in figuring out and perfecting how to partner with the best universities in the world And honestly, convincing people like a Wharton, a Harvard, an MIT to work with a small unknown startup in India—you know—it takes time. Um, we had expanded a little bit, but it was predominantly classroom. When we saw the online opportunity, is when we realized that actually we need to take funding to grow this because unlike classroom, uh, in online you have to invest in content creation upfront, and then you monetize over time. You also have to build a tech platform. and we were also thinking about how do we do this on a global scale because you know these brands are well known so we wanted to raise about a million dollars uh maybe 2 million dollars we met a whole bunch of vcs um including you know vcs who later on invested in us and they all said no um now some of them said no because they thought i was a promoter and i didn't have the ambition to scale because i had wasted 7 years of my life and I, you know fair enough that's their view but some of them also gave us very good reasons like and bertelsman was one of those <clears throat> excuse me so they said look it's a offline business which means you will grow you'll be profitable but you can't scale this as much as you should be able to and so if you figure out ways in which you can take this content online and convince your schools to do online then you're going to be a massive business right and that was something that played on our minds and we went back to our schools like i said and we created this online course Uh, and at that time, Bertelsmann about so that took about a year. Bertelsmann came back and said, "Look, you guys have are amazing. You've done exactly what we thought you would do. You've gone back to the elite schools. You've convinced them. That's fantastic. We want to invest, right?" And they became our first institutional uh, in, investor in, in the company. Um, and thereafter, actually, you know, a beautiful thing happened. We were we were a small startup sitting predominantly in Mumbai. our marketing team was based here our program advisors were based here but we were marketing across the world um and you know we started growing expo- uh, exponentially so we grew from on a booking basis we were about 10 million dollars when we took our investment we went from 10 million to 30 to 60 to 90 to 180 to 330 this year probably 450 to 475 
um and so the feedback that that but uh, that bertelsman gave that hey if you're not online you won't be able to scale so think about online was a very valuable uh, piece of feedback so actually you know i have a lot of respect for some vcs because they have deep knowledge in the case of bertelsman they've invested in udacity they had a um, education fund in the us etc and so because they see so many companies they see so many models and they've seen so much of you know history of how startups have played out that one or two simple insights sound so simple right but that distilled insight had such a big bearing on the company like one of the insight they gave us is in the early days we had contracts with our university partners that were like one year contracts and they said look your business is very risky because every year you have a renewal risk so now our contracts are 5 years 7 years in some case 10 years and that is a much more valuable business to be because you know there's stability and there's growth because the contracts are medium to long term so it, so you know we were helped by some investors like this um sequoia came on they invested in my earlier company gv i think is you know he he's done a bunch of stuff on uh, in edtech with other uh, players as well so it kind of became you know success beat success uh, we were starting to get well uh, noticed uh, and of course covid abiraj uh, your question covid for us see most people think covid helps on the demand side and suddenly demand went up you know our average ticket size is about 1 lakh people are paying for like six month intensive course you get a certificate from the university and sometimes you get sometimes cases you get it, uh, alumni benefits from the university so it's not a casual purchase it's a considered purchase so it's not like demand went through the roof for us i think demand was always there and even today it's still there. it's not gone up in covid it didn't fall off after covid it's a secular trend of demand has always been there what changed for us because of covid was all of our schools right what would they tell us when we go to them to create a new course many of the faculty would say oh but what i teach in the classroom i can't teach online online is ineffective now covid for two years all the faculty had to teach online and many of them or maybe most of them became comfortable with the medium so what happened for us is we were able to create a lot more online courses with our top institutions and just having those courses as an offering to the market Uh, you know obviously grew our enrollments grew demand grew revenue grew all of that so covid has been very helpful for us in that it's a fundamental shift where every academic institution today is talking about hey what is my online strategy whether it's for my non degree students whether it's for my degree students as well as what is my blended strategy even for an on campus student can i blend some online content etc so that conversation that paradigm has changed significantly because of covid and definitely because of that we were a beneficiary great one last question from my side what path ahead ashwin uh, how do you see the next 5 10 15 years pan out for uh, for your company so i uh, continue to have a long term view i feel in many ways we're just getting started abidat why there are 20000 universities in the world today we are working with about 70 of them so 20000 universities we are working with 70 right there's a lot of room for us to grow uh, in our market most of our students are you know in the age group of about 30 to 40 we are not yet in the masters level undergrad level uh, pre college level etc so there's a lot of room for us to grow i take a long term view of the business <clears throat> uh, and you know our mission i think is what guides us and our mission is going to always be to make high quality education accessible and affordable so there have been certain instances where we may not do a certain program because it's not high quality or and many many times you're working with our institutions on the affordability and accessibility issue for example um 
today 15% of our students are learning in languages other than english so spanish portuguese and the roadmap we want to do turkish arabic french german maybe even hindi uh, or other vernacular languages in the country so how do we do that how do we get more women to participate in our programs because <clears throat> with online and not having to travel that's actually possible so many of these access and affordability issues that yet need to yet be tackled like i said <clears throat> very long term view uh, lots to be built uh, and i think you know we're just getting started so very excited you know i often tell my team i look forward to monday morning uh, because what we are doing matters it touches people's life and i you know when you are mission driven i think you still enjoy what you do very well put i think uh, i think a mission is you know what drives drives is a fuel for so many of us and so many of our companies uh any like you know for a bootstrap founder today uh who's few years in uh you know probably not getting the love from vcs is now made the choice that this has to be profitable growth what would your advice be for this individual what are some of the things that they should they should keep in mind as they continue on the journey yeah, look i agree with you there's nothing wrong in being a bootstrap company and you can build decent large outcomes based off that the question to ask yourself is look why are you looking to raise vc money and if the idea is that it really fundamentally helps you scale your business and do something that otherwise you can't uh, something to something to look at then don't be deterred by the fact that vcs said no you know look vcs look at 100 business plans they invest in one so their model is to say no it's like the iit they accept half a percent so their model is to say no but you still take the entrance test you still try some people try again you don't give up right that's the you know that's the thing that makes an entrepreneur entrepreneur to struggle to strive and to seek and to never to yield this is from ulysses alfred lord tennyson that's an entrepreneur to struggle to strive and to seek when a door shuts you think it's somewhat open right you don't hear a no you hear a delayed yes so if you believe that your model needs that money and you need to raise capital take feedback whenever vc says no say ask why what can change that will you know change your uh, decision etc but the truth is some businesses uh, are not investable businesses by venture capital maybe they investable by different kinds of capital they could be debt they could be angel um, or just you know you plow back your profits and grow so you have to be brutally honest with yourself which of these two businesses you are in and based on that you know decide the path that you want to take but in general my one advice to entrepreneurs is never be deterred deterred by no's no entrepreneur i mean a very few uh, probably know that none that i know of went to the vc and the vc said yeah you're the best business in the world here's a check most likely the vc will ask 100 questions and you start doubting yourself self doubt is part of the entrepreneurship journey and that's why sometimes it helps to have co-founders or advisors or just people who've done that before right and that's why i think the second time doing it is also much easier than the first time because you've dealt with all the self doubt issues you've heard the nose before it's like water off your back yeah, being deep how did you you know go about recruiting people aligning them to the culture keeping those you know core tenets of your culture still intact the company would have looked very different in 2019 compared to 2017 uh how do you go about the scaling journey and you know one is just looking at the numbers on a bar chart right but that that chart has in it so many stories of 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 you know scaling challenges people challenges processes breaking uh, and most importantly culture Right. one of the hardest things for entrepreneurs when they scale a company is 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 keeping the cultural ethos intact tell us about that uh, ashwin 
Yeah, look, when you're a small company, people see, see culture, first of all, is observed. It's never spoken about, right? The way you treat people in your office, other people observe that. And then they realize these are the artifacts. This is the cultural artifacts of this company. Um, and so when you're a small company, everybody, you're visible to everybody. Culture is very easy to build. When you're a larger company, then you have to make a little more of an effort. Plus, when you're a virtual company, especially in the last two years, so many people have joined us. Many of them have never even seen me or met me in person. Right? But they've seen me on a Zoom call. They've seen communication and we have outreach and a bunch of stuff doing. So I think all of that is very important. The main thing I would say is, you know, as you as you're a company, if you're in the growth phase, spend a significant part of your time hiring. Um, it's not just for cultural reasons, but you really want to get the right people in the right place. You know, many times what I see is people will look at 10 resumes, talk to two to three people, make one offer. Um, I say make hiring your priority. That you should, whenever you hire for a senior role, not just your direct report, maybe even a VP, AVP level, right? You should at least have three people that you believe you can, if any one of them accept, it'll be a great hire. Which means you should have perhaps have interviewed 50 people. Perhaps you should have, you know, shortlisted to a group interview or a project work for about 10 to 12 people. And then three shortlists that you can go after. That's a lot of work. But that work will pay off because those people will hit the ground running. They'll build culture. You know, they will be meritorious. So they will attract high quality people. The team will be happy. And then you will not be sitting in and they are fighting like, you know, fires and other issues. Because you just hired the good people. What I see a lot of entrepreneurs do is because you're growing so fast, you don't have time, you need people, you hire people who come in through the door, but then you're all the time fighting fires, you're dealing with people issues, whether that's cultural, not cultural, you have to let go of people. You know, a hiring mistake takes about a year to 18 months to rectify, right? So I just say make hiring a big part of what you do as, a, as an entrepreneur and try and do kind of the non-traditional hires, right? You know, the typical, I look at interview, uh, resume, interview, etc. You know, you should have network, especially for senior level hires. If you can hire through your network, that is a, like an 80% chance of success versus traditional hiring is probably 30%. So that's what I have done. Look, culture is something that is tough to measure. I don't know how you can actually measure and say we've done a great job. It's also always in progress. You're building it. Uh, as a leader, I think also, you know, there are two kinds of leaders. There are, you know, entrepreneurs who will get on the stage and dance and party in an annual uh, town hall or whatever. Um, I'm not that. I, I am more introverted, uh, conservative. Uh, but the company knows that if there is, there is a tough choice to make, that I will make that choice based on certain values. And that is our culture as erudite, that I think if you talk to our people, they will tell you that this is a company that values its people, that treats its people right. It's not uh, flashy, no dashy. Uh, our annual parties are not something that we rave about. In fact, we've not had them for a few years, but we will be, do the right thing for our people. So you have to, as an entrepreneur, create your own authentic self and the culture will flow from that. Very well said. <clears throat> Very well said, Ashwin. You know, at especially in the K-12 segment has gone through a lot of um, a very interesting pace, let's put it that way, in the last couple of years. Um, a lot of edtech founders will start with the mission of saying that we want to build a company that solves, you know, the fundamental problems of education in the country. Uh, and, and, you know, the heart of a lot of those problems are in the K-12 segment. Um, 
without you know getting into uh, a commentary on the current landscape do you do you feel optimistic uh ashwin about a company at some point in time coming along and actually making a real dent in the education landscape in india particularly in k12 or is it you know the the fundamental flaw of capitalism that that the pursuit of profits can just you know not like who are at loggerheads with each other what what is what is your thought process here yeah i i, I won't blame capitalism uh, i will blame the founders as a founder you are in charge of the ship you navigate which direction you go and if you decide to go and pursue profit at the cost of education um that's a problem now look i'm not saying education should be not for profit the the water that we drink the company bisteri got sold for a lot of money that is more uh, a necessity than education uh, so education companies should be allowed to make money and that allows them to invest in tech product and grow etc but there has to be a certain way in which you make money like you have to serve uh, students with there's a certain sanctity a certain purity right i give you one example of the what i mean by this right? so for example at erudite is in emirates uh our program advisor so when somebody says hey should i do this course or not they typically speak to a program advisor who guides them we don't pay them any incentive based on sales so whether you bring dollar x or dollar 10x you that doesn't determine how much compensation you get the there's a base salary there's incentive only for quality metrics how many calls did you take did you answer properly did you advise the student properly etc right now what that that straight away does is if for example abhiraj you call me and you say you need a particular course you need an mba i hope my student advisor will look at your profile and say look you don't need it you're overqualified so you don't need it abhiraj do something else right maybe you need coaching or something like that. but then that is the right way to even um, advise people and sell education like i don't even like using the word sell education but you know what i mean on the same on the other end of the spectrum if some we have companies here k12 companies and i know who you are referring to i think everybody does 70% of that advisor salary comes from a commission based on a percentage of sale so same thing and we've seen examples if a person who calls maybe they can't even afford that k12 education maybe they don't need it also but that student advisor who is also a young person trying to make money and ends meet is going to say no absolutely this is the best thing for you buy it buy it here then here my here's a loan i'll sign everything on your behalf blah 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 and straight away yeah so as an entrepreneur by the way it's very easy to say oh i don't control what my advisor does i have 10000 advisors etc but you set those incentives you set the system you set the values right so i think we can't blame capitalism we can't blame anybody else we have to blame individual founders and companies for what they do there are yes there are some bad actors but there are also good actors right? and we should talk equally about uh, companies who have that uh, that in mind unfortunately i and I, i know look i'll admit there's a lot of the press today is about some of the bad deeds that have that have happened and perhaps rightfully so that does make me a little sad um, but hopefully we'll get get our value systems back as a sector and you know focus on students and student outcomes and talking about the press you know you've been a very very um you know quiet under the radar founder you know there're not too many interviews by you out there not too many you know, you're not someone who's going out there at events uh 
is this by choice is this you know something that you consciously chosen uh, to do to sort of remain under the radars and silently build uh look i think in dna end of the day right uh, i have so much on my plate if i have some time i spend that with family um, or you know things like that um there's only that much of pr and stuff that you can put out there right at the end of the day the business has to speak for itself um after we became a unicorn we did get a lot of inbound interest and so if you, even if you look at any press that we have or i have done it's really in the last 12 months before that there was hardly nobody even wanted to write about us even if we wanted nobody wanted to write about us. so this unicorn tag has given us some attention but again look it depends on the sector there are certain sectors in which the role of the founder has to be to go out there and evangelize the sector in which case you have to be out there you have to be talking to the press i am not in one of those sectors right because look our program eventually will come from iit delhi and iit bombay and iim or harvard mit these are brands that are well known i don't need to go and evangelize in iit delhi or harvard right and so in my sector i don't need to do that and therefore i don't if i had to i would as a leader have to step up my own view really is you know look you, you build a solid business right build a solid business focus on that that's the input metric the output metric yes some press will come some recognition will come we are not one i think we won one award in all of our life we haven't won any of these it doesn't matter because at the end of the day that my kpi is to build a solid business that has a mission focus and i have to deliver on that mission so the way i look at my success is this year we are touching the lives of 250000 people right my big harry audacious goal is in the next 4 to 5 years can the 250000 be 1 million but it still has to be high quality education so completion rates of 85 to 90% nps of 50 or higher weekly ratings of about 4.5 4.6 on 5 we have to manage that can we get to a million students now somebody decides to write about us or not how does that matter my mission is based on this and last question ashwin uh, and then we'll wrap uh, slightly macro question uh, your um, uh, what is your uh, you know overall uh, long term view on both the potential of india and the potential of the indian startup ecosystem look i i think uh, you know when somebody last year said there are 100 uh, unicorns in india Uh, and it's a great number i said yes but in the next 5 10 years whatever you can take a large uh, time horizon could that 100 become 500 and i think that's imminently possible uh abhiraj i'm sure you interact with a lot of startup founders younger ones people who make us feel old uh, at it make me old let me not speak for you uh the excitement that i see the talent that i see the kind of ideas that we are seeing coming up nowadays is phenomenal so i'm extremely extremely positive about india bharat but also the startup ecosystem and the, look i think the last few months have been somewhat challenging but that's been challenging for the entire world it's not just india in fact india is probably the you know doing better than many of the other startup ecosystems in the world i think there's a great opportunity for us again it comes back to the macro level right this consumption is strong uh, we have a very large young audience um so i'm very i am super super excited about what we can do here for a country specifically to my sector we have a demographic dividend opportunity right we have about 300 million indians in that age group of 15 to say 25 to 30 uh 
but only the challenge is only about 30% of indians finish school and go to college so our gross enrollment ratio is about 30% my i feel where i can give back to the country and and other providers like me is can we work to make that 30% go to 40% in the next decade right online education would have to play a very large part of that because that extra 10% means about 13 million seats and there's no way brick and mortar universities can do that so partnering with the good institutions in india can we create online capacity so that demographic opportunity that we have actually comes and is realized and we create the skills and train manpower women power whatever to make sure that india continues to be that great superpower that all of us wanted to be that is where i feel that i also play a role and that's why i have this optimism on what india can be thank you so much for sharing that uh, ashwin thank you so much for sharing very candidly and eloquently uh, your journey uh, with us lots of learnings for all of us i'm sure uh, lots of things to ponder on um, you know couple of things that i would take back is one just perseverance uh, and belief is so important um, you know what appears to be an overnight success at times can be 10 12 15 years in the making um and uh, i think uh, as entrepreneurs delayed gratification is something that we all have to uh, you know acknowledge and, and the journey and the delight is actually in the build um and the second is is just you know your sense of mission and purpose which is so strong um uh, and and comes through and shines through and i'm sure it is um it is one of the reasons why a lot of people that at your company and eruditus and emeritus you know come to office and run to office every day every monday morning like you uh that that sense of mission is 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 uh, so large much larger than the company itself uh so thanks a lot uh, for joining us ashwin thank you very much thanks a lot thanks abhilash thanks ci thank you for listening to cii podcasts